Welcome to Life Church. We are an ex 242 community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through His Word and by His Spirit. Well, good morning. Um, so, we're progressing through the Just 10 series, and we've now arrived at a quite nice one You Shall Not Murder. Um, what, what, we're, what, we're not doing, what we're not doing, you shall not murder, we're doing how to manage your anger, which hopefully will prevent you from committing murder. So I suppose <laughs> this is the one commandment that, that most people probably were quite comfortable with, that, uh, that they wouldn't accidentally um, commit. You know, it's quite hard to accidentally murder someone. It requires a bit of effort, a bit of planning. And, uh, you know, you can let a little fib slip out, you know, a white lie. I like your shoes, they're nice. Um, you could be a bit cheeky with your parents. Many people use the name of Jesus and God thoughtlessly in, as expletives. Uh, but the brutality of committing a murder and the significant consequences, even in our culture, for the most part, keep this one at bay. Or at least it did. But Jesus, during his Sermon on the Mount, took this commandment and blew it open. He said... That, uh, that it actually wasn't just a physical murder. And, you know, the Pharisees, I'm sure, were very happy when this was their banker, that this is the commandment they kept perfectly. And it, I think it's the easiest to fall foul of. And I think it's the hardest to get out of as well. So I'm going to read Matthew 5, 21 to 26. So if you want a minute just to turn to that. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser, that while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Sounds very harsh. I suppose it is a bit harsh, it's heavy stuff. Uh, But Jesus didn't, you know, this wasn't even a nice parable. It's just really direct and really clear. And I've searched and was not able to find another example in the Bible that gives us a grounding to leave the church. He's saying, you know, if you're convicted, you're in worship and you're doing your your offering, stop, leave, fix it, and then come back and offer it because what you're offering is not good. So if you feel convicted, if your heart's telling you something, then your feet probably should move. I'm not saying you should leave now. Um, please don't. Um, but it is an important task, and we should be urgent to remedy this problem because um, it gets worse. So when we think about emotions and actions based on emotion, they can be overwhelmingly powerful, can't they? We can be completely hypnotized and motivated by emotions like anger, love, joy, jealousy, and pain. They can lead our lives into complete chaos. 
though seemingly not under our control, but rather the things that control us. So where do the emotions come from, and why do we feel these things so deeply to our core? Well, I suspect we feel these things so deeply because God feels them. You know, throughout the Bible, we find examples of God experiencing each of these emotions, anger, love, joy, jealousy, and pain. In fact, since we're going to be talking about anger, Psalm 7, 11 says, God is a just judge. He is angry throughout the day. Throughout the day, that must be exhausting. You know, if you're angry for five minutes, it ruins your day. Your entire day is knocked out. Um, but, and we're all a reflection of the divine. You know, we, we're made in God's image. Our emotions are an intrinsic part of us because the part of God. And some argue that we've fashioned a God in our likeness due to our limited ability to comprehend something beyond ourselves, that we've made him like us. But if that were true, why would we elevate him to holiness when we have no example of holiness of a perfect person? The truth is that God has saturated us with his essence. He crafted us in his image, and our deepest emotions mirror the sentiments that pour out of the heart of God. Our capacity to love stems from God's love for us. Our anger finds its source in his righteous indignation. I assure you, no matter how impossible it may initially appear, we can forgive because God forgives. However, there is a catch, and there often is. We've tainted and corrupted these facets of our lives, much like we've corrupted many other aspects of our existence. Consequently, it's not always easy to see God's image within ourselves and each other. The outcome of this distortion is that in our world, love has been reduced to a superficial term for um, for sexual immorality. Anger and jealousy are typically destructive, whereas God's anger serves a higher purpose. It's always directed towards righteousness. Instead of the profound joy residing in God's heart, many have become entangled in the shallow thrills that are fleeting of substance abuse, partying, and uh, things like gambling. Rather than channeling pain to motivate us to rectify wrongs, we smother it with alcohol, excuses, and animosity. Forgiveness on our part is conditional upon immense retribution and reciprocal suffering, and even then we may decide we can't dispense forgiveness. So what is the nature of anger? As I said earlier, anger is a God-given emotion. Scripture reveals to us that it's not always sinful, um, but, um, so we shouldn't fear it altogether. It's not a bad thing. Quite the opposite, anger should act as an alarm bell that cautions us there's something wrong. There's an injustice that offends our innate knowledge of disorder in an action or an omission, something we haven't done. Checking our anger will also prevent any unrighteous anger or pride from sneaking in and pretending to be righteous anger. But it convinces us that we are right in this. You know, somebody has offended us, we're right to hate them. We're right to, to want the worst suffering for them, that it's justified. We're going to take a look at Ephesians 4, 26 to 32. So if you want to turn to there. So be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, 
along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The thing that I find most interesting about this scripture is, is the opening. Um, be angry and do not sin. So we have, a, we have a green light for anger, but a warning that we must not sin immediately afterwards. And, and then later he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and sound be put away from you. So which is it? Be angry or put it away from you. Um, well, I believe it's both. It makes sense to me when I test it against scripture that there's a momentary value in anger that much like a new car, the second you drive it away, the value just starts dropping rapidly. The purpose of anger is to call you to action. But then you should act appropriately and put away the anger, which has played its purpose. You decide to keep it around, it's going to go rancid, it's going to spread its stench throughout your life, and eventually people will start noticing the smell and giving you a wide berth. There are things that you can be angry about, the same things that God is angry about, the things that dishonor him. Feel anger for the suffering of humans, cruelty to animals, and sinful actions. However, be cautious with your reaction and keep your actions reflecting God's heart. The danger is that, when, is that there are wrong responses to anger that can lead us to sin. And in a world filled with sin, I think we most often get it wrong rather than right. And I include myself with that as well. So I want to look at some strategies for managing anger. So how do we keep our hearts and minds in the right place, focused on the right things? Well, the first thing is we have to become more self-aware and listening to the Holy Spirit. Proverbs 14.29 teaches us, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. So it's, it talks about how it's not just it's bad, it's, it's, they're saying it's silly, it's, it's ridiculous, it makes no sense. And really when you think about it sometimes, it doesn't. You know, you think about what makes you angry, and you really think about the situation and the impact it has, it doesn't make sense. But it's driven by emotion, emotion often doesn't make sense. We know that love often makes no sense. And the reason that people do things are often from those emotional places in their heart. And to manage our anger, we must first recognize the triggers and understand the physical and emotional signs of anger manifesting within us. So I want to share some feedback I was given, probably about six years ago now, or seven years, and uh, I was awarded a contract with the government, and one of the requirements was that all my tutors were screened with a psychometric assessment. They then simply said yes or no to individuals. Uh, there was no indication as to why or what they were looking at, but it was just a, a yes or no, and we were given a 30-page report which um, exposed you, and it, it is terrifying how accurate it is. Um, I was looking for things to say that it wasn't me, but if I did, it would just justify everything they said about me. So either way, you don't win. And once things became clear to me, and I'd read the report and had the feedback with the psychiatrist, I was able to see benefits in them, and so I was able to apply them. And I'm gonna share a short portion, it's already up, let me read quickly. I'm going to share the short portion with you. Uh, it is the worst page. It was titled uh, Potential Blind Spot, so, so be nice. <laughs> Since he is a natural critic, he tends not to demonstrate his appreciation of the positive attributes or contributions of those around him. He may have difficulty accepting what others have to say if it varies from his own certainties. Definitely not outrageous. 
When he made the effort to adapt, when he makes the effort to adapt a more accepting approach to life and dealing with others, Daniel will achieve greater acceptance of his innovations. Prone to anger, he has a strong, active conscience and may become upset if others simply do not follow his lead. He may not wish to hear the objections of others because to him, his own position usually seems unquestionable. It obviously is. He may need to slow down to consider the feelings of others, even if he doesn't share them. Daniel strives after justice and wants to rectify injustice wherever and whenever he finds it, but his values must prevail. Very much a head person, he has little real appreciation of just how much some of his decisions may offend people. He could sometimes slow down and pay closer attention to the finer details of his projects. Daniel's biggest drawbacks are sometimes perceived by others as arrogance, impatience, and insensitivity to others' feelings. And that is very true. This is a... This is honestly a very accurate description of the way that I naturally work. You know, I am very matter-of-fact. Um, I do take no prisoners, and, and that's not good. So after reading this report, I did take a step back, and, and I did see it as a more efficient... I had to reason it was awful. I reasoned that it was logically good, so therefore I was going to apply it and see whether it benefited me. Um, spoiler, it did. So my business is really important to me. You know, we must be the best, and as it says, I am a natural critic with high expectations of myself, my team, and the students. Those expectations have brought incredible results, but it can't be at any cost. You know, we still achieve great results, incredible results, but we now invest time and notice the individual efforts of the team. We build up and love our students lavishly, and we forge relationships that outlast exams. My mindset changed from asking, am I right? to asking, am I being fair? You know, is my expectation and assessment of a given situation fair, given the balance of all information? This simple check helped me to, you know, to trust people to get on with the jobs, and became easier as time went on, and became a habit. It may be tough for me, but it, was, it benefited more people than it was tough for me, so it was a good thing to do anyway. And being a Christian takes us a step further. The Holy Spirit changes our hearts to no longer just ask, are we being fair? But are we being generous? So give it, you know, we have to give the benefit of the doubt. We have to give more chances. We've got to be more patient. We've got to be generous with forgiveness as we've been forgiven. So we can't be saying, is it fair? What's in it for me? It has to be, you know, I'm, I'm just going to do this because I love Jesus and he's told me that this is the way that it should be and I accept that that's true. Not to say that you'll never slip back into old ways, and I have done many times. If we're pushed for time, stressed, or otherwise fallen back into a thoughtless response, the risk that will always be, will always be that we're trying to rely on our own understanding. You know, this is, I do go back to this. You know, this is my natural state. And uh, we have to be willing to trust and wait on God and not expect immediate results or for things to go the way that we think that they should. So pause and reflect. Practice restraint and measure. James 1.19 advises, my dear brothers and sisters, please take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. In moments of anger, it's crucial to pause before reacting, allowing us to reflect on the situation and our emotional state. Last week, we heard Ethan touch on what happened with Jonah, and I am stealing this. Well, it's, he's inspired it. And I was considering a joke about ending up in the belly of a fish. But um, the Holy Spirit kept this message of Jonah on my mind all week. 
And uh, Jonah was fuming with God. Yeah, he was not a fan of Nineveh, not, not even slightly. Nineveh was a terrible city full of godless, horrible people, unworthy of being saved. Jonah could not accept or understand why God would have any desire to save such a place. And the truth is, he already knew at the beginning that that's the way it might go. And we know that because later on, he, he referred, well, we'll read that in a minute, but in chapter 3, Nineveh was heeding God's warning. They'd heard God's warning, they'd heard the prophecy, and they were desperate to change it around. They trusted that what was said was true, and, and they really wanted to repent. So they, um, you know, they, they, they stopped eating, they fasted, they, they put on loincloths, even on their, um, the sackcloth, sorry, on the even on their animals. Like they were that desperate. And, uh, and God was seemingly pleased. He was pleased enough that he decided, I am going to spur them. You know, I've seen a change in their hearts, and I want to offer them a second chance. But here's what happened in Jonah 4. So it is quite a long one. Uh, it's titled appropriately, Jonah's Anger and the Lord's Compassion. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in, in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out to the city and sat at the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. And he was, he was hoping it would burn. He wanted it to burn so badly. He was desperate. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry for the plant, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity for the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left, and also much cattle? The truth is that God's mercy did not fit in with Jonah's theology. He'd already decided the way that it should have gone. Um, and, and even that's not whole, completely true, because he knew that God could potentially let them off, and, and he just didn't want, to, he didn't want it to happen, so he thought, well, I'm going to run, I'm going to go, because then if I can't warn them, they can't change their ways, and then they're definitely going to be, definitely going to be punished, and it's good. Um, but obviously, then he faced some trials, because God was not, not pleased that he decided to disobey him, and in the end, when he comes out to the fish, he's like, oh, yes, Lord, I'm so sorry, I, you know, I've, I've made a mistake, you know, I've been arrogant, I apologize, I've changed, I've changed, and then three minutes later, He's going, oh, but didn't we have this discussion already? I thought we'd ruled on this. And uh, God's like, no, I, I ruled on it. Um, but Jonah was greatly displeased and became really angry, and he shows no restraint. 
in sharing his opinion with God. You know, this is a prophet of God. And he's got no problem to, to talk back to him. You know, this is a man who did fear the Lord, who knows what his capabilities are. But he was clouded by anger. The anger was just, it was making his, his actions unbelievable. You know, this is a man who was respected as a prophet, as a, as a man of God who speaks the word of God. And anyway, he shows no restraint in sharing that opinion. He was more worried about his reputation than he was about God's. He literally lectured God on how he should handle the business of being God. Then God asked Jonah a question. Have you any right to be angry? Clearly the question tells you that he doesn't. Uh, there's, there's an insinuation there, isn't there? God is God, you know, and he can save whomever he pleases. Um, whatever Jonah may think. You know, Jonah has no answer, obviously. So God decides to teach him a lesson about anger. And what I like the most about this is that God, God is doing something in Nineveh, but he's also doing something with Jonah. And he talks about the 120,000 people and how important they are. And they are important, but he's just as concerned about the 120,000 as he is about the one. You know, the, the, he's, he, his heart's in both places. He's trying to bring about change with the one and for the 120,000. Well, it'd be more than 120,000, but that's just a reference to uh, the ones who don't know the left hand from the right. So Jonah sat down, overlooking the city to wait, still hoping that his prophecy might come true and God would annihilate Nineveh. And see, there's a problem here because if, you know, he's a prophet and in, in, in those times, prophets were, were, were judged against whether they happened. <laughs> so if he prophesied and it doesn't happen, then you're a, pro a false prophet. And that's a problem then. So that there is a real risk. It's his own doing, uh, but there is a risk that if the prophecy he's foretold doesn't come to pass... That, he, that he'll have questions to ask and that he could be at risk. So some of it is it's a selfish need to preserve himself. But in reality, if, if God's working in this way, God will, would protect him. God is going to make sure everything works for good in the end anyway. Um, but it's exposed, dry and hot. So he's pleased when God makes a vine grow to shade him. But the next day, the vine dies and the wind picks up. So he becomes angry with God again. He's got a new thing to be angry about. God asked Jonah, do you have any right to be angry about the vine? Well, obviously he doesn't. He didn't make it. He chose to be there. He was given a gift, and the gift was, was removed. So, no, he was given a gift for a day. He should be thankful for what he had. Uh, and if Jonah really thought about what's happening, he'd realize that he's got no right to be angry about God saving Nineveh. But he doesn't learn his lesson. He replies, yes, I do. I do have a right to be angry. I'm so angry that I will die. Maybe that's an image of how our anger distorts our ability to reason. Basically, God is saying to Jonah, get a grip. There are far more important things to do and far more, more important things going on than your personal comfort. And don't make the mistake in thinking that I'm going to conform to the way that you think I should. But he says it much nicer than that, but... Uh, He's really challenging him to change within his own heart. He wants him to make that decision to see the error of his ways. And for, he wants us to do it quicker. But sometimes it's going to take some struggles before you realize that, that you have a problem. And he hasn't yet realized he has a problem. So Jonah was unhappy that God didn't seem to be doing what he thought was right. He didn't understand the plans that God had working. And he just couldn't trust that it was good. This is even though he was a prophet... And he had the benefit of seeing the, the, the city repent and turn to God. He just couldn't see the good in it. 
He was like, no, these are filth. These are trash. These need to be you know, removed from the face of the earth. Even though they were repenting, he just couldn't see the good in it. In our moments of weakness, in our human nature, sometimes we fear that letting go of anger, forgiving those who've harmed us or hurt us, mean that we won't see justice or we won't get justice. But we must trust that God is working. No thought or action is ever hidden from him. But just as God finds us worthy of mercy, we must respect and honor that it's the authority of God to lavish mercy upon those who've sinned against us. You know, we don't actually have any power over anybody else other than what God allows. I have no doubt that most people here, I include myself, has a Nineveh, an enemy that we need to show love to, a grudge we have to let go. You know, they're, they're tough. You know, they're really tough and you're clouded. And Jonah ran from God. Well, it's so interesting because he ran from God before there was even a problem because he suspected there was a problem. Yeah. He's already, he was convincing himself. And he went the opposite way that God commanded. He didn't go deviate slightly. He just turned around and went the opposite way. He wants to go the furthest distance from what God said, just in case, just in case that it actually happened. But God did not abandon or lose his temper with Jonah. His heart was to correct his child, change his heart, and bring about compassion. So what are you running about, running from, or what are you worried about? In our anger, we should bring ourselves to pray that we may hear God saying to us, do you have any right to be angry? Do you have any right to be angry? Most often, the honest answer will be no. We don't have any right to be angry. We'll be angry because our personal comfort has been affected. Our beliefs have been challenged. We might be angry because we're, we're selfish or self-centered. So often we're angry because of some inconvenience. It's something that's just inconvenienced us. It doesn't really make a big difference. It's a question of perspective. When we start to see things from God's perspective, we might find that our correct response should be repentance rather than anger. With the right perspective, his unrighteous, this unrighteous anger will, will trouble us left, it will trouble us, but it will trouble us, trouble us less often. So we're going to seek God's guidance and desire his will. Aim to see people how God sees them. Recognize God's immense love and compassion for people, regardless of who they are and what they've done. His heart is that none should perish. So his open invitation for forgiveness through Christ exists alongside his promise of just judgment and eternal punishment for those found with guilt. Nothing gets let off. Recognize the value of life to God regardless of our judgment. When we hold on to anger, brew hatred for others, or withhold forgiveness, we, as followers of, of Christ, we challenge Jesus for the throne that we've recognized he holds over the kingdom of God and over our lives. He's called us to do something. If he's, a, if he's the king, we must obey it. Uh, but it's tough. You know, it's not easy. But he'll recognize the challenges. He will aid us with that process. But when you refuse to do it, it's different than struggling with it. So we are saying that we love Christ when we do this, but, but our way is better. We proclaim that our hurt is beyond God's understanding and we question his promises to us because he does promise us that things are good and that things will work for good for those who love him. So we should trust that.
we declare it that we're sick of waiting on God. Our timeline is not the same as God's timeline. We might die before God brings justice for what's happened to us, but we should trust that it's going to happen. Psalm 4.4 encourages, tremble and do not sin when you are on your beds. Search your hearts and be silent. Turning to God in prayer and seeking his guidance can give us the wisdom and strength to manage our anger. Practice forgiveness. Love your neighbor. Ephesians 4.32 reminds us, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Holding on to anger and grudges can be burdensome. Forgiveness is a path to release and healing. And then the transformative, the transformative power of managed anger, it will strengthen your relationships. Proverbs 15.1 says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. We can foster healthier and more harmonious relationships by managing our anger and responding with patience and with kindness. Achieving peace, uh, God's shalom. Philippians 4, 6 to 7 assures us, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Managing anger allows us to find inner peace, to let go of hurt, to let go of things that are going to corrupt your life, that are going to fill it and are going to invade it. And like we talked about earlier, it's a, it's a disease. It will spread. It will, it will create a stench. It, it will, people will know that you're angry. And that's not something you want to be. If you're a follower of Christ, you want people to see that you, are, you have that peace that transcends all understanding, that you love God. You love God so much that you're willing to forgive people's sins against you without any expectation of, of reward or, or justice. Um, or justice is in immediately on your timeline. Managing, um, so we want to reflect God's love. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 5 reminds us, uh, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no records of wrongs. Managing our anger enables us to reflect God's love in our actions and interactions with others. Anger is a powerful emotion, and it requires attention and reflection. By following the teachings of the Bible and practicing self-awareness, reflection, seeking God's guidance and forgiveness, we can manage our anger in a way that honors God. It strengthens our relationships, brings us inner peace, and reflects God's love. So remember the words of Proverbs 19.11, a person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. I want to leave you with a great quote from a book that I read by Robert Jones. It's called Uprooting Anger. Righteous anger remains self-controlled. It keeps its head from cursing, screaming, raging, or flying off the handle. Nor does it spiral downward in self-pity or despair. It does not ignore people, snub people, or withdraw from people. Instead, righteous anger carries with it twin qualities of confidence and self-control. Christ-like anger is not all-consuming and myopic, but channeling to sober, earnest ends, 
Godly strains of mourning, comfort, joy, praise, and action balance it. Rather than keeping us from carrying out God's call, righteous anger leads to godly expressions of worship, ministry, and obedience. It shows concern for the well-being of others. It rises in defense of oppressed people. It seeks justice for victims. It rebukes transgressors. Godly anger confronts evil and calls for repentance and restoration. Now, Lord, I pray that what we've discussed today finds its way into people's hearts, that it highlights any of those situations where, where we, do, we do need to, to hear that prayer from you, that do you do, you do right to be angry? We should look to trust in God's promises and his timelines and wait on him. If we're asked to do something, we should be obedient to it, not turn the other way and run. Help us to be more patient. Help us to be compassionate. And help us to manage relationships in a way that glorifies you, Lord. In Jesus' name. I pray. Amen. We've come to the end of this week's message. We hope you've been impacted and inspired. Keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.lifechurchwarrington.com.